I'm talking to Matthew Slaboch, who is a visiting assistant professor of political science at Denison University in Ohio, about his 2017 book called A Road to Nowhere, The Idea of Progress and Its Critics. So Matthew, why don't we start with a very quick elevator pitch? What is the book about? Sure. So my book begins with an observation that political slogans from recent presidential campaigns, if we think about them seriously, ask us to consider what the nature and trajectory of historical change is. So if we consider Ronald Reagan's campaign theme of mourning in America, that sort of imagery presents a picture of a bright future, sunny days ahead, has an optimistic ring to it. Years later, if we think about Barack Obama's uh, campaign and the message of hope and change, that too has an optimistic ring to it, uh, presents a, an image of a brighter future, better days ahead. More recently, if we think of Donald Trump's campaign, two campaigns, and the message of make America great again, there the imagery is a little bit different, uh, combining pessimism about the current moment, dissatisfaction with how things are, and optimism that things can be improved, um, hope to, to return to, to some unidentified prior great moment. So each of these campaign themes are really, if, again, if we take them seriously, asking us to consider how history unfolds. Is history a tale of progress from worse to better? Or does history follow instead a, a series of you know, fits and starts where there is improvement and decline? Is it cyclical? Uh, these are the sorts of questions that I want us to consider. Um, is there a right side of history? That sort of uh, lingo gets tossed around a lot these days um, where adversaries of, of one idea or ideology paint their opponents of being on the wrong side of, of history. Again, thinking about that, that sort of language, does history have a, a right side or no? Is, is it just a series of events that, that un, unfold? And so that's what my book is, is looking at, getting at serious thought regarding how history unfolds, um, how it's supposed to unfold, and part of the, the impetus for, for looking at that is in, in the current moment, people by and large in the US and, and around the world express through various public opinion polls or surveys that they think their own countries or, or the world at large are on the, the, the wrong track. That doesn't mean that they think there um, isn't a right track and that history doesn't move in, in a direction from worse to better. But again, the, the popular impulse, the mood today seems to be that we're not moving in a positive direction. So again, I want us to, to consider, you know, especially 
some, some critics of the notion that we're supposed to um, move in a direction or that history necessarily unfolds in a direction that is positive. Right. And, and just to sort of make it clear where I come at uh, the idea of progress at things is to say that um, I think that humanity has achieved a lot over the last 250 years, especially, but that there is no guarantee of progress. In other words, there isn't some sort of an overarching force uh, that is guiding us uh, to a, a perfection, a perfect ideal state. I think of progress as a series of gradual improvements, but without guarantee of success. But let me actually start our conversation by reading something that uh, you have written. And once again, the book is really very good. Uh, I found your discussion of the 19th century German philosophers especially interesting. Um, you explain Schopenhauer in a clear and concise way, <laughs> more better than, uh, than anything else I've written, uh, I've read. Uh, but, but here's something that you wrote. Since the Enlightenment, the idea of progress has spanned right and left-wing politics, secular and spiritual philosophy, and most uh, every school of art or culture. The belief that humans are capable of making lasting improvements, intellectual, scientific, material, moral and cultural, continues to be a commonplace of our age. However, events in the preceding century, including but not limited to world wars, uh, wars in Korea and Vietnam, spread of communism in Eastern Europe and Asia, violent nationalism in the Balkans, genocides in Cambodia and Rwanda, have called into question this faith in the continued advancement of humankind. Political theorists should entertain the possibility that long-term continued progress may be more fiction than reality. So those are your words. And let me posit to you that the 20th century was both the worst century, but also the best century, which is, creates a bit of a paradox that maybe we can discuss. After a century of massacres, humanity ended up richer, longer living, better educated, uh, more technologically advanced than at the beginning of the 20th century. So maybe we can look at the intellectual, scientific, material, moral and cultural progress um, individually and see where the progress has been made, where it hasn't been made and what accounts for this tremendous paradox of the 20th century. So I'd like to preface my, my um, response to that by saying that the figures that I talk about in my book, by, by and large, uh, this, is, this is a book on critics of the idea of progress. And I'm careful in the book to use that phrase um, because these are figures who are not critiquing or critical of progress. They're critical of the idea of progress. And there's a distinction there. Um, so no one is going to criticize something having improved. No one is going to say, boy, I really wish this thing that was bad had stayed bad. That, that's not what um, the, the figures in my book are, are doing. What they're doing is critiquing the, the notion that we should expect ever greater improvements over time. So 
sure, if we look at some of these things, intellectual, technological progress, I think the, the figures in my book would you know, have to acknowledge, certainly there have been advances. Scientific dis discoveries are real. Um, you know, industrial advancement is real. Uh, material wealth improving, no doubt there. Some of the other features or, or factors get more complicated there. I'd say moral progress is iffier, and the figures in my book would um, be hesitant possibly to outright endorse uh, the notion that there has been sustained and lasting improvements in morality or cultural affairs. And I think looking at the, the 20th century, it is hard to overlook uh, the, the two catastrophic world wars, especially the, the second there. It is hard to overlook um, fascism and then, then the aftermath, uh, the, the Cold War and, and uh, Soviet totalitarianism there. Um, those aren't just blips there that, that we can easily wash aside and, and say, you know, apart from those, good century. I mean, those are things we, we really have to, to wrestle with there. And I, I think, again, you know, the, the figures in, in, in my book aren't, aren't going to say scientific progress or advancement isn't real or material while being having improved over time um, isn't, you know, real or, you know, standards in literacy, for instance, that's, you know, a, a notable improvement there and, and something to acknowledge. Um, what, what they would you know, find um, problematic again is some of the notion that, that there's necessarily moral or political progress over time. That's harder to. to... Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, one of the biggest claims, or one of the most controversial claims made by Steven Pinker in uh, Better Angels of Our Nature is that he argues for the long peace. Um, after the end of the Second World War and the general decline of conflict. Although I accept that that is a question of the last maybe seven decades and we need a longer time period to evaluate whether wars have indeed disappeared and all that. Um, but he also points to things like uh, the end of torture uh, as, a, as a means of getting uh, or rather as a means of processing uh, witnesses at trials. Uh, he points to the end of child exposure, um, human sacrifice, uh, wanton cruelty to animals, like torturing cats just for fun. Um, and he sort of sees the Enlightenment, the 18th century, as the, as the big flowering... Uh, or maybe the genesis of this gentler, nicer humanity. What do you think about those arguments? So um, some of those, those arguments are valid, but I think what you prefaced it with is, is something I would say as well, that we need a, a longer focus here. Um, to, to say things have been going well for the past 70 years, Again, as, as you mentioned at the start, that's that's no guarantee that the next 70 will continue on that trajectory. So if there has been improvement um, in terms of, of 
piece um, for the past 70 years. That's no guarantee of what, what the next you know, century will, will look like or anything right. like that. That would be one response there. Um, and again, improvement on some of these moral things. Yes, uh, you know, treatment of, of animals, for instance, and the rise of humane societies. That's notable. But notable too is, you know, compared with previous centuries, something like factory farming as well, which wouldn't have been possible to, to cram in, you know, chickens or, or cattle into tight spaces the same way as it's possible to, to have these large factory farms now. So there, there's always some sort of give and, and, and take, I would say, and not necessarily everything moving in, in an improvement direction all at once. So it's possible to make advances in one area while still making sacrifices or declining in another. And I'd say we can see that with um, you know, some, some sorts of, of these moral questions here. On slavery, for instance, um, you know, statistics, uh, depending on, on your, your sources, are going to say there are more slaves in the world now than there have been at any point in history. And that sort of slavery in includes um, an, an expanded definition of slavery to include thing, um, things like sexual slavery or um, you know, um, people were, again, working tied to um, their, their um, employers, but, but not receiving a wage. That sort of thing, again, some of the, the statistics point to slavery as being a phenomenon that, even if made illegal, hasn't been eradicated. Um, so that would be yeah, my response uh, on some of these. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, uh, we are not going to get bogged down on this particular issue, although, you know, I note that that is an expanded uh, sure. definition of slavery. In other words, our success in uh, largely eliminating chattel slavery has allowed us to create that as a new floor and we judge everything that remains in in contrast to that new floor rather than rather than what it was so so we have expanded our definition of slavery and that in itself i would uh, argue is uh, is is progress but once again, just to re-emphasize, we do agree that um, things can go terribly wrong and that there is no guarantee. Um, would you agree with me that optimism about the future, um, this idea of progress, originates um, during the Enlightenment 18th century in Western Europe and that it is new in, in human history, and then that there is this backlash, especially from the German thinkers in the 19th century, to whom you devote a lot of time in your book. So I guess the question is, why the backlash, and especially in Germany? Okay, so I agree with the, the first part of that, and less so with the, the second. I agree with the uh, notion that the idea of progress really gains traction during the Enlightenment of Western Europe. And I think part of the reason for that is that if we consider when the Enlightenment is, it's following on the heels of the scientific revolution and the great advances made 
during um, the, the 15th and 16th centuries there. So the, the notion comes to be if humans are capable of making such great strides forward in science and technology, why can't we do that in other spheres of existence? So again, after the scientific revolution and the, those huge undeniable, undeniable advances there, thinkers like Condorcet start to question, you know, why, why just science and technology? Why not progress in morality and politics and, and art? And that becomes kind of the, the standard enlightenment view that, yeah, why not? Um, so the, the notion of progress really does take, take off in, in the enlightenment. As far as a backlash, I'd say that the idea of progress still gains steam and, and runs, runs aground straight through the, the 19th century. There, there isn't that strong a backlash. The 19th century in, in Germany is, is still, that's the time of Hegel. Um, that's, that's Hegel mania. And Hegel definitely has a, a theory of progress. Is, is there critique of that idea? Yes. And you mentioned, um, you know, someone who, who plays a starring role in my book, and that, that's Schopenhauer. But Schopenhauer um, doesn't gain the prestige of Hegel. Um, Schopenhauer in his time doesn't really find much popular reception until near the end of his life in 1860. Why is there some popular reception of Schopenhauer then as opposed to earlier when he was writing? Um, his, his masterwork was um, in 1818, so you know why is it only 1860 that, that he's finding an audience? Uh, I think part of the reason for his reception comes from the failed revolutions of 1848 that swept across Europe. And so there, there is a sentiment of you know, being dispirited that, that comes with those failed revolutions that makes a pessimistic philosophy like Schopenhauer's you know, potentially more appealing in, in a moment or climate like, like that. But again, Schopenhauer in his day, or, or Nietzsche um, for that matter, doesn't have the, the same influence um, as, as Hegel. So it's still by and large a century that is putting uh, emphasis on ideas of, of progress, then, even if there are some critics emerging. Okay, so that's good to be corrected on that. Um, you note that uh, promoters of progress like Kant and Herder were cosmopolitans, but Fichte and Hegel were nationalist. So when and why progress stops being a sort of universalist idea and becomes infected with nationalism, and perhaps we can go further and say that it results in imperialism, racism, um, and ultimately both fascism and communism. So, so what happens between Kant and Herder on the one say uh, on, on on the one hand, and uh, let's say Hegel and Fichte on the other. Sure. So I think one of the things that, that changes is simply the face of Europe. Um, 
at the time that these various authors are writing. So if we consider, for instance, Fichte's day, the time that Fichte is writing is a time when uh, Napoleon has started his march across Europe and has succeeded in reorganizing a lot of the German speaking areas of Europe. And Fichte is writing in response to this. He is worried that German culture will be lost and that French ideas will be imposed, French laws, French language, French, French everything will be imposed on German speakers. Uh, and Fichte is, is one of the major thinkers to, to put forward a nationalist idea for Germans, specifically talking about German national identity as being ethno-linguistic as opposed to civic or, or something else. And Fichte puts forward an idea of, you know, German-speaking city-states, which are what exists at that time, uniting into one Germany. In Fichte's day, there, there isn't a, a Germany. There's a, there's a Prussia, there's a Bavaria, there's a Baden, but there's no Germany. Fichte is one of the proponents of the German-speaking city-states uniting to form a Germany to better defend against influence from neighbors like the French. So part of what we're looking at here is just the, the historical context that nationalism is a modern feature. It's something that is arising by and large in the 19th century. And the reasons for the rise in nationalism have to do, I mean, there, there are all sorts of explanations for the, the rise of nationalism, but it, it, it includes things like improved um, modes of transportation. If, you know, formerly distant towns are now connected by rail, then I, as a German speaker, can visit someone more distant and see that this other German speaker is like me, and now we have a connection. Um, that couldn't have been imagined in the past. Um, improved literacy makes it possible for nationalist doctrines to be printed and circulated in um, periodicals or newspapers or things like that. So the, the rise of nationalism in, in the 19th century has um, all of these components here. So that, that's something we, we need to um, consider. Why the connection of nationalism and the idea of progress? Why Kant, um, as, as a cosmopolitan, and Fichte and Hegel not? I think part of the, the story that's, that's unfolding here and that unfolds uh, in, in the 20th century as well is that people um, expecting progress expecting improvement, being told that things should get better, when they don't see that better, or if that improvement doesn't come quickly enough, they turn to an entity that they hope will bring about that improvement, that progress. And that entity tends to be the government. And again, in the 19th century, that's when we see a shift 
towards the nation state emerging as the type of government that exists. Before that, again, it's city states or empire. 19th century, that's when we really start to, to see the crystallization of nation states. And so I see I what you see with Fichte and with Hegel is an emphasis on the nation state as the guarantor of, of progress, as, as something that is to be used for positive good, to, to bring about improvements that aren't coming quickly enough or haven't yet been realized. That's interesting. I want to talk more about the connection between uh, large governments and progress um, a little later in the interview. But for now, I want to uh, turn back to Schopenhauer. So uh, people like Fichte and Hegel believed both in progress and also in the big and powerful nation state, whereas Schopenhauer denies both progress and the nation state. Um, is he the first anti-progress philosopher and can you tell us a little more about his philosophy and his attitude to both the nation state and to progress? Sure. So as far as being the, the first anti-progress philosopher, of course, I mean, we, we discussed the, this earlier about the idea of progress gaining steam in the Enlightenment area, era. Right. So before that, we have philosophers who have philosophies of history that make no mention. Of, of progress. So they're not actively critiquing a notion of progress that has gained steam. So if we consider you know, the, the Stoic philosophers in, in the ancient world, for instance, Marcus Aurelius you know, talks about history as just being you know, the, the same story unfolding on, on the world stage and, and just the actors changing. So it's, it's the same dramas repeated over and over again, um, and just, you know, new people born to, to play those roles. But he's not combating an existing ideology of, of progress. Um, and likewise, other classical thinkers have you know, cyclical theories, but, but they're not actively critiquing or, or combating uh, a dominant narrative that is putting forth an idea of progress. If we want someone who is critiquing the idea of progress as it's come about in the Enlightenment. We could look to someone like Rousseau, for instance, who has a critique in a way of uh, progress and, and thinks that there's been maybe too much civilization and, and that, has, that it's led to, to jealousies and, and um, envy and fighting that comes about from more complex emotions. Uh, more complicated economic development leads to rivalries. Rousseau has that sense of, of you know, critiquing some aspects of pr progress, but then again, he puts forward uh, a notion that he thinks will bring about progress in the future. So he's got a critique of the past and, and the present, while in the in the social contract, putting forward a, a vision for you know brighter days, better days. And this would be the general will. Um, yes, right, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So the the social contract acting um, to to fulfill the, the the general will, and then things improving 
there when when everyone is um, fairly you know getting what what they should have then better days ahead can can come about um but schopenhauer i'd say is is really um the the most prominent of thinkers who are giving a, a sustained critique of optimism or optimistic theories he is the pessimist philosopher bar none if you if you you know, Google pessimism, Schopenhauer is going to, to come into um, play here. So his philosophy in a nutshell, what is, what is he talking about? Yes, he has a, a philosophy that is not optimistic, it's pessimistic, and it's anti-statist. So where does this philosophy come from? What's, what's at root here? Schopenhauer has notable affinities with Eastern philosophies, particularly Buddhism. And he's he's probably the first big name Western philosopher to take seriously Eastern philosophies. So the way that Schopenhauer characterizes the world is one of ceaseless striving. And the philosophical term that he uses to describe what animates the world is he, he repeatedly talks about the will. And as examples of the will in the world, we can think of something like gravity. Why do things fall down? Because the will wills it. Or magnetism. Why are things connected, you know, or attracted to each other? Because the will wills it. Human actions, too, he says, are motivated by this, again, philosophical uh, idea that he's put forth, the will. So you can do something because you wish to do it. But Schopenhauer would say, well, why do you wish to do it? What is animating you? So say you take a drink because you want to take a drink. Well, why do you feel that need to take a drink? What is motivating you? He says that's, that's the will. So anything that we do is just an instance of the will directing our actions there. And the will, as he presents it, is something that can't be satisfied. So we have a goal, we have a striving, we have a desire. And as soon as we meet that striving or desire or goal, we're maybe satisfied for a minute or two. And then we get bored and then strive for something else. A new desire pops up. So he would say, you know, think of endeavors in your life, you meet one of them because you feel some sort of longing, you feel some sort of lack. But then when you've reached that goal, you don't stay satisfied. It's not ha happily ever after at that point. It's, oh, now I feel like I'm missing X as opposed to Y. And so you go after X and you get it and you're satisfied for a moment. And then, oh, there's something else that I'm missing. And he says, life, this is the, the imagery that he, he puts forward. Life is, is a pendulum that swings between pain and boredom. Um, so the pain from wanting something that we don't have, and then the boredom that sets in once we've achieved what we were after. That's his, that's his philosophy. I, I think that's a profound observation in many ways. Um, 
recently I finished writing a manuscript of my second book, which took, you know, eight to 14 hours a day. And um, when I finished, suddenly, well, I was happy for a moment. And then suddenly there was this void, this emptiness for like two days. Oh my God, what am I going to do with all these hours? Now, I was disabused of that very quickly because other other um, responsibilities kicked in. But I remember evaluating that feeling and sudden feeling of being lost, like what's next? So, so I get that. Um, what I would say, though, is that striving, even if you cannot reach, uh, or rather uh, ceaseless striving, is always better if you can do it on a full stomach and in a nice apartment and you are generally healthy and you know you have access to good hospitals and things like that. Does that in any way impact uh, that, that, that criticism that Schopenhauer has or it's just not that important because the striving trumps everything? I, th I think in the end, the striving trumps everything and the improved material well-being, you know, that's something that, that he would grant there, that there has been improved material well-being. And certainly he, he was happy enough to, you know, defend um, the livelihood that, that he'd made and, and the wealth that, that he had inherited and, and was someone who was against the revolutions of 1848 in part because he wanted to you know defend the, the wealth that, that he did have there. So he's he's someone who you know does value his his abode there in the end and, and isn't going to say, no, um, it doesn't it doesn't matter to me. Um, but the ceaseless striving, the the constant going after more and more again his his philosophy is one that say in the in the end does does that make you a better person does that really make you happier to keep doing more and more because you're never satisfied the, the good apartment with the good view isn't going to be the end of the story there it's going to be a, a fleeting sort of you know um satisfaction that's not real it's not it's not lasting there it's not a, a sort of permanent happiness there and that that's really what his philosophy is getting at is that you know despite these improvements some of the the problems that we face are just simply intractable in the end um that you know no amount of material well-being or um, improved technology is is going to get ar around some of the, the problems that we face in life. Mm. It's very interesting what you said about Sch uh, about Schopenhauer and um, uh, revolution, because when I see a lot of dissatisfaction in the United States and in other Western democracies and uh, people screaming, burn down the system, um, which is the equivalent of the of the revolution, people simply assume that out of the ashes of the old society, something better will inevitably emerge. And there is absolutely no guarantee of that because of law of entropy. And uh, 
or whatever else. Things things go bad in many more ways than they can get good. And it was just very interesting to see that that uh, that observation. Um, where does his anti-statism come in? But I take it he was not a libertarian. He was not a libertarian. He was he was a monarchist. And his, to be fair, um, I, I'd say his critiques of optimism and his critiques of the state are better than his defense of, of monarchy. The, the defense of monarchy boils down to um, he, he thinks people are idiots and um, doesn't trust their judgment. Um, you know, he he talks about trial by by jury and, and dismisses that. Um, he says something like, um, I'd, I'd rather be governed by a lion than one of my fellow rats. I think he borrows that from from Voltaire. So it's not it's not a, a you know particularly um, insightful or, uh, or or strong defense of, of monarchy monarchy. But he is a monarchist, but a monarchist who doesn't in the end want the state or or the the sovereign to do that much. In the end, doesn't want that monarch who has political power to use it for a lot more than providing defense or security there. Uh, the anti-statism is because uh, he doesn't think that forcing people to behave a certain way makes them more moral. He thinks that morality is a personal thing. And so a lot of Schopenhauer's work is focused on ethics there. And so the state forbidding someone from doing something doesn't necessarily change a person's character or impulse in the end. He wants people to be more altruistic on their own, to be um, more upstanding, more moral on their own without having to be forced to do it. He also sees an overreaching state as, you know, not only ineffective in, in changing people's morality or disposition, but dangerous in the end. He thinks that state overreach can have serious ramifications and cause more problems than, than good. They're giving too much power to the state means that an entity um, can become all controlling, all consuming. He is someone who's worried about um, the march towards totalitarianism there. So he wants instead individuals to figure out their moral well-being, what's, what's good for them, and to act on that rather than some big entity, big state, big government telling them how to act and behave. Large state is both ineffective in the end and, and dangerous. Um, it can't make real, sustained, lasting improvements in the areas of life that matter to Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer is someone who has values and does prioritize some things as more important than others, but he doesn't see the state as something that can lead to lasting and permanent improvements and instead sees it as something that if, if the state were to try to create lasting and, and permanent 
improvements. That's that's dangerous um, because there are problems of of the moment and new problems pop up. So to believe that the state is capable of solving all problems that exist for the individual or society is simply misguided. They're in a recipe for people giving up too much of their personal autonomy in the hopes that this this big um, Leviathan is, is capable of, of making their, their lives better. So I guess there are echoes of this problem in today's government efforts to, for example, uh, foster progressive education or uh, proper eating and eating habits or behaviors. And yet I believe in progress and I also believe in small government. So where am I going wrong? What is this unavoidable connection between progress and big government? Yeah, so I'd say you individually might not be going wrong. You know, you might be internally consistent here and say you believe in progress, you believe in further advancement, and um, you also believe in limited government and you're able to square those things. What I would say is the problem isn't in believing in those two things simultaneously, progress and smaller government. The problem might be for you in a generation or another generation following from the spread of the ideology of progress. It might have ramifications that are unforeseen at the moment. Again, because if people are told to expect, and this is not how you've presented it at, at the get-go, you said progress isn't guaranteed, it's possible. But if what people hear is that progress should be expected, that tomorrow should be better than today, if they find that tomorrow isn't better, than today, or two days from now isn't better than today was, they'll wonder why. And they'll start to ask, you know, where is this progress that I was promised? Where is this improvement that I was told I, I would see? So the danger comes in with, again, the idea of, of progress spreading because people will become antsy or desperate if they are led to believe that they should see all sorts of improvements in their personal lives or in their societies, whether that's at the city level or in their state or in their nation. If they don't see those improvements, if they don't feel that advancement, that's when they might turn to bigger government as a possible remedy for what they think they are missing, what they think they've been promised and, and haven't um, yet achieved. And that promise of you know, ever, ever better progress from the government was a way that, for instance, the totalitarian communist states of the 20th century legitimized themselves. And if I could, just a, a very brief quote from a Croatian writer. Please go ahead. Slavonka Draculic from 
Cafe Europa, one of her, her better known pieces, she reflects on the Communist Party in Yugoslavia and how it justified itself. The word progress was always one of the key words in political speeches of my youth. Look what progress we have made from a poor peasant country. How many asphalt roads we have built? How many factories? You're not starving any longer. Your children go to school and have proper shoes and everyone has electricity nowadays. Isn't that progress? And communism brought you all that. And that is you know, very much part of the rhetoric of communist party officials um, during, during the communist period to, to justify their endeavors in the name of progress there, industrialization in the name of progress. And if that's done by using, you know, prison laborers, well, but we, we get the factories in the end. So, and the roads. You can't make a perfect society without breaking a few eggs. Right. Right. Exactly. Or, or, um, so I grew up under communism and uh, what I remember is something along the following lines. Looking back, it's obvious that even under socialism, you could get spurts of growth. Obviously, life in mid 1980s Czechoslovakia was better than in uh, 1946 Czechoslovakia and all that thing. But what we did have was the example of Western Europe and the United States, which grew much faster and accomplished much more progress than we had. In other words, we had this comparison to make and we could say communism sucks because our progress is only a fraction of what the Western societies have accomplished. And I wonder if with the collapse of communism, people in the West um, don't really have any way of comparing their progress to anything else that we sort of see ourselves we don't have a relevant point of comparison so i wonder if some of that disappointment and anxiety and unhappiness that we see in the west is because we don't have anybody relevant to compare ourselves to we could be comparing ourselves to venezuela but we don't because those people are far too different from us and it could never happen here, right? Um, but there isn't really an alternative. So the dissatisfaction has to be generated or addressed from within. We turn on each other because there is no external enemy to compare ourselves with. Does that make any sense what I just said? Yeah, it, it does make sense there to, to say, you know, there there was a time you know during the cold war when westerners had a, a clear comparison there uh, a clear this is our way this is the alternative our way is better um clearly uh you know not you know mass starvation not empty shelves um you know not long lines for for bread those are those are comparisons that westerners would have been able to to make during the the cold war um that that imagery is is harder to to find now for the the reasons that that you um 
spoke about. In, in a sense, the only thing we can do is to compare the present life in the United States to the past life in the United States. And if you are uninterested in history, uh, then you are not going to find a uh, comparison of the United States in 2021 to 1950 particularly compelling. Similarly, if you are not interested in economics, you cannot identify the reasons why uh, growth in the Western world today may be much more anemic than, than it was before. That maybe some of the vitalism of the economy we have lost precisely because the government has grown so large. So in a sense, it brings back uh, observations of Hayek and Friedman and the scholars of the, of the classical liberal uh, school, which is that the bigger the government grows, the greater the retardation of economic growth, thereby leading to greater disappointment of people in terms of how much growth the economy can generate. Um, and, uh, you know, it makes me think of Adam Smith's famous uh, quote when he said, little else is requisite to carry a state to the highest degree of opulence from the lowest barbarism than peace, easy taxes and tolerable administration of justice, all the rest being brought about by the natural course of things, meaning just a gradual improvement in the lives of individual people. And so I wonder if uh, if we can ever have that Smithian type of progress again, or whether, whether the Western society uh, uh, unavoidably has to go down the route of ever-growing government, more promises, more disappointment, and more social strife. What do you think about that? So I, the, the quote you read there is, is an interesting one, and it has... Um, some some broad connections to other political or, or moral um, theorists, and the the formula that's kind of presented there by by Smith of there being peace and then then things that that come from peace like greater flourishing of, of various sorts. That's something, for instance, that that Thomas Hobbes put put forth there when when defending um, you know government and what its utility is first guarantee peace and then with peace can come the the fruits of civilization that that we um you know all cherish whether that's literature or art or industry or material well-being any of that is impossible without first there being a level of peace or security or, or stability there. The, the problem is there's, there's always been the tension between the need for security on the one hand and the desire for liberty on the other. How do you get the balance right that is going to guarantee peace? That's important, that's necessary, without the state being overbearing and, and intruding too much on people's lives. That's that's a tricky tension there that has been difficult to, to reconcile in the end. And so I think there's going to be a back and forth on that. But the, the other part of your, your formula there, the, the opulence part that comes from stability or security or peace, that might... Um, be an instance where figures in my book would say, all right, even if, if we get the measure right, the balance right between 
liberty on the one hand and security on the other and bring about opulence. Is opulence the end of the story there? Um, is, is that in the end most important? And that goes back to someone like a Schopenhauer who's going to say, in spite of that improved material well-being, you're still going to see striving. You're still going to see dissatisfaction there. And I think that's you know, a refrain that's somewhat common to, to people um, talked about in, in my book here that in spite yeah, of because, this, yeah, you're, you're dealing problems. Go yeah, ahead. you're dealing with deeply rooted issues in the human psyche, in the human nature. I mean, whenever I go out and give talks about human progress, I can give like 70 trends of things improving. And uh, the questions will invariably not focus on the improvement, but will ask, ah, but what about that? Sure. Uh, or what about this? Right. Um, and, and, and so the Q&A is always the same, which is answer the problems that are on the horizon. Don't dwell on the successes of the past. And that right. speaks to that to that to that human nature, which is which is fascinating. And once again, I think that the Schopenhauer discussion uh, in the book is absolutely fabulous. But I want to switch now to Schopenhauer's successors, sure. Burkhardt and Nietzsche. When I was preparing for this interview, I noticed that Burkhardt is on the thousand franc note in Switzerland. So they they do. They're very proud of their yes. native son, I take yeah. it. Um, so Burkhardt noted that history cannot stand variety. And he feared that uh, in this progressive slash all-powerful nation-state future, um, everything will be dead and colorless. And then Nietzsche observes that powerful governments have a repugnance of genius. So I want to ask you, is that the world that you think that we live in, where we have no variety, where things are dead and colorless, where powerful governments have a repugnance of genius or um, is diversity everywhere and we celebrate people like Musk and Jobs or Jobs, Steve Jobs. In other words, maybe you should take out your, your, your own personal view out of it and just focus on these German philosophers. If they, if they came to the United States in 2021, would they see deadness and no variety, or would they see diversity and vibrancy? I th think they would see dead deadness and what what is common commonly characterized as diversity. They would call or variety. They would call a superficial sort of variety or diversity, and they would see trends such that the world is becoming more diverse in all of the same ways, which is to say not diverse at all. So what do I mean by that? If you travel across the United States, for instance, um, you know, there's a famous or infamous picture you can find on, on the internet of a turnpike in Pennsylvania. And this, this image of this turnpike in Pennsylvania shows a Shell gas station and a McDonald's and a Wendy's and I, I, you know, maybe a Lowe's. And you look at that picture and it could be at any stop in America because yes, there's a variety, 
but it's the same variety that you see at every city in the United States. It's the same choices of, you know, chain restaurants that are popping up over and over and over again. And if we look at that on, um, you know, the, the world stage, it's not just in the U.S. here to, to turn to a country you mentioned here, your, your homeland. Um, you know, a trivia question for you that you can probably answer. What, what's the most popular fast food chain in the Czech Republic? I don't know, but I assume it's McDonald's. It's not. It's KFC. Oh, is it? <laughs> um, there are K KFCs all over um, Prague now that have sprouted up in a country where I don't think most people could identify where Kentucky is. Um, Kentucky Fried Chicken is is popping up everywhere. And I think for someone like Burkhart or Nietzsche, who valued aesthetics very much and valued, um, you know, distinctiveness, I think they would have a problem, for instance, with there being a Starbucks next to the Jan Hus Memorial in, in Prague. I think that would be abhorrent to, to, to them. Or a, the Starbucks right on um, Prague Castle grounds. There are things that they would say, you know, these, these monuments or parts of culture shouldn't be debased in such a way. And to have something that is, you know, as you know, non-localized, that is just ubiquitous around the world as a Starbucks or a KFC as part of the landscape, Burkhart and, and Nietzsche would, again, I, I think they'd be pretty appalled by that. Or for instance, the, the loss of linguistic language variety. That's something that is increasing over time. There's a, a rapid clip of languages being lost to the world. And, you know, the flip side is, of that is, you know, maybe, maybe that, that's a good thing that if we all speak the, the same language, then we don't fight over language because, you know, linguistic battles have, have been at, at the root of um, a lot of wars. But, but others are going to say, no, there, there's something valuable. There's something meritorious in there being that sort of variety in the world and there being to, to use, you know, um, Switzerland, Burkhardt's home. So there being the existence, existence of that very small language of, of Romance being spoken there. You know, not a lot of speakers, but it's it's a language on the, the decline there. Is there something valuable about having, um, you know, a, a smaller language like Romance in, in the world? You know? Yeah, you know, um, uh, it's... It, it, um... Um, it also matters where you stand or what is your perspective? Where in the universe are you located right. to look at that Starbucks or that McDonald's or that KFC? Because, of course, when I was growing up I mean, in the 1980s, uh, meat was a very rare commodity. Uh, you had to look long and hard uh, for a nice chicken and all that, all that jazz. In other right. words... Um, for them, the variety has increased by importing the um, the elements of Western capitalism, such as KFC and McDonald's and that sort of thing, because they didn't have it. I mean, a perfect example of that would be when McDonald's opened in Moscow in 1990 or 1991. There were lines for for hours and right. hours 
because the Russians have never seen uh, anything so beautiful as a McDonald's in that dreary communist paradise which they have created. Not to mention that all the food which was served to the Russians in McDonald's had to be flown into Russia from the United States because they actually couldn't produce the buns and the beef pates and, and the tomatoes and whatever else uh, in order to create that McDonald's. So it very much matters where you stand. And I wonder if this um, aesthetic stand that you described and that you associate with philosophers is really something unique. In other words, that Burkhardt and Nietzsche and Schopenhauer can poo-poo these small, these, these, these um, expressions of commercialism precisely because their own heads and their own thought processes are elsewhere. Um, they are thinking about aesthetics. They are thinking about linguistics, about philosophy, about the soul. And maybe the ordinary person, and I count myself among them, um, is satisfied um, in, uh, in, uh, with, with what we have, including KFC and McDonald's. What do you think of that? Uh, I, I think there's something to that. Uh, so in science, social scientific studies that make use of the world values surveys, which are conducted globally and uh, measure people's attitudes and behaviors on, on a variety of things related to religion or politics or, um, you know, belonging in um, clubs or organizations economic considerations, any number of things. One of the results from these surveys has um, noted that as people have their material needs met, meaning if they're doing sufficiently well off to you know, have their stomachs full and have a solid roof over their, their heads, that's when they turn their attention to other things like environmentalism or aesthetic you know endeavors and and you know saving art or things like that so the ordinary person if he or she doesn't have those basic needs met doesn't have you know a, a solid guarantee of income and food and um, uh, shelter, they might not care about aesthetics or something like that. But I don't think it's purely a, a philosophical thing. I don't think it's too high in the, you know, heads in the, the, the clouds type of, of thinking to be concerned about art or, you know, something bigger than, um, you know, um, fast food and, and commodities there. I think it becomes possible, again, to be interested in things like aesthetics when your basic needs are met. And so returning to, to the idea of progress here then, if humanity is moving in a direction where more and more people's material needs are being met, then we might see a shift towards people caring as Burkhart did and 
Schopenhauer did and, and Nietzsche did about other things, about artistic endeavors. And maybe it's been possible to, to you know, square things about having the, the fast food and the choice and the variety of, of meals and also be concerned about artistic variety and the little ornate details that existed on buildings in, in the past as opposed to, you know, mm. being, you know, just kind of boxy structures here. Or it could potentially lead to more conflict. Let me let me try to explain myself. So we are talking about Maslow's pyramid here. At the bottom, we have things like shelter, food, uh, you know, basic material needs. And right now, people in the developing world are doing a very good job at meeting those at an increasing at an increasing pace, and they will be moving up the pyramid. But in the West, we have we have met those basic needs some time ago and we have moved up that that pyramid and what's at the top at the top of that pyramid are issues of uh, self-expression are issues of caring about the type of society that i want to live in uh, these are these are values i forget the word now but they're about expression about uh, uh, social values and things like that and once you reach that point i wonder if that actually is going to result in more peace and more stability or more instability and more conflict because of course we cannot agree on what a what a good society is some of us have more risk aversion some of us have are more risk taking some of us put greater emphasis on equality of outcome others on uh, equality before the law some value liberty other people value um, stability the church um, family whatever and so if you want to be really uh, controversial let me be controversial for a second well, maybe capitalism, by being so good at meeting those, those, those basic needs at the bottom, results in people focusing more and more on these values on the top of the pyramid, where there is a massive amount of disagreement, and that in itself then leads toward greater uh, explosion of disagreement and animosity. So capitalism could actually be the creator of its own destruction by allowing people to spend a lot of time thinking about the sorts of things that Schopenhauer, Nietzsche and Burkhardt did. That's possible too. Um, that once needs are met, once basic needs have been fulfilled, uh, it's possible to turn attention to other subjects, other areas of debate, and those areas of debate might be on uh, problems or disagreements that are fairly intractable. Uh, and we've seen such polarization in, in the U.S. recently, where um, you're, you're right. You know, by and large, we've we've we haven't completely eradicated, of course, hunger, but this is a, a prosperous society where shelter is is you know something that, that's common um you know and jobs are you know fairly um widely available and um income though not guaranteed there there are social safety nets and we do have 
strife nevertheless, in spite of these, you know, very good things having been achieved here. So um, in being controversial, uh, I, I won't say that I won't say that you're you're wrong there. I mean, I think I think we're seeing elements that, that speak to the truth of, of what you're saying here that people are are fighting over over things um, in spite of their they're having having it good and, and having it um, good compared to maybe other times in, in history um, and the politi politicization of of everything now I think that's one of the things that that the figures in my book would would be aghast at is a lot of them are anti-political in the end, and to see so much politics in everything now, where there's a Republican pillow company and you know a, <laughs> a Democrat pillow company, there's there's something messed up with that um, there. Um, right. I mean, in a sense, uh, the, the the German philosophers have won. Everything has become uh, ethical and aesthetical. Um, you know, I don't want to have Trump signs in my neighborhood. I don't want to have uh, Obama car stickers in my uh, parking lot. Um, uh, when everything is politicized, then having a powerful government is tremendously dangerous because whichever faction gets hold of the government can then impose their own views of progress and a good society on everybody else. So in a sense, we go back to your your most important uh, sort of concern in your book, which is the power of government and its relationship to progress. Um, that that progress could potentially flourish, but it cannot have that when we have reached this top of the Maslow pyramid, and now we are debating about um, these different values this is where dangerous this is where big government is at its most dangerous yes yeah um absolutely i uh, no no other response there than other than to to say i agree and that i think the the major figures in, in um my work would um accept the the way that you've characterized them and, and their fears here that what they're worried about is this notion of progress being abused of states or governments or those who have political power doing things in the name of progress, justifying their actions because of their particular visions of progress, which might not be universally accepted visions of, of progress. But nevertheless, the government or those in power feel as if they need to move, again, to, to use the, the language of the right side of history, that they understand the direction that society should go. And therefore, they not, they not only have the right to move society in that direction, but a duty to do it because though they are so certain of what progress should look like, what the future should be, that they feel that it's legitimate to use state power and, and all the, the apparatuses that, that come with state power to reach the objective of whatever their vision of, of the future 
is. That's that's what the, the figures in my book are, are worried about there. That again, not critiquing actual progress, not critiquing improvements that have happened, but critiquing the, the notion that tomorrow is definitely going to be better than today or that a decade from now should be um, better than, than this decade and governments coming along and saying, here we are, we're, we're here to help you and, and make you know, the, the future better. And in doing so, being heavy handed and um, again, you know, going down the road of totalitarianism. And also, assert, and also asserting that they know how to get there right. and what a good life should be. Right. So maybe let's conclude this conversation by uh, me proposing uh, that there is a, uh, well, it's not certainly not a, a, an original observation, but there is a split that emerges within the Enlightenment. Uh, I would probably call it the Scottish versus the French, but maybe you would, would, you would put it differently. But essentially, the, the Scots um, argued that uh, that in an atmosphere of freedom, which is the opposite of a big repressive government, um, people will try out different things and the better ways of doing things will sort of bubble up through the process of discovery than other people seeing that some folks are flourishing will adopt their um, innovations, be it political or economic or just technical, medical, whatever. And that essentially progress is something that happens organically that bubbles up from the, from the bottom up through, uh, through the desire of individual men and women to better themselves and their families. And that's a very different type of progress and a very different type of um, of idea of progress and the directionality of progress, which is that there is no directionality, that's very different from, let's say, the French idea of progress, which is um, we know that humanity can be molded into something better. We have an idea of what the better is, and now we are going to force everybody to, to basically compare comply with that and we are going to force everybody to comply with an idea of progress and with the ultimate destination um, that that we know what it is and we know how to get there would you agree with that yes it's i'd say there there is that that split there between the more classical liberal view of, of progress and maybe some other um views of progress that, that have a, a more socialist tint to them and, and see um, more of a place for um, the, the state to intervene to, to bring about progress. Uh, with uh, the Scottish Enlightenment view there and, and that particular kind of classical liberal um, idea of, of progress, I'd say that that's closer to something that the figures in my book would in endorse that sort of view that is anti-statist uh, anti-statist and that allows for trial and error um 
in the way that you described. So one individual trying something out and if you know others see that it has worked for then for him or her, then others you know adopt that same practice and that that's a way of, of growing and, and improving there and, and fair enough. Uh, the more pessimistic of my authors would would say, that's fine you know to allow that freedom by all means that that should be encouraged there to let people um, see you know, how they can meet their own challenges or how a local community can uh, overcome its problems um, and you know maybe pr provide a guide for for other localities but the more pessimistic thinkers would would say returning to your your point about human nature there might probably be some figure or party who comes along in the future who wants to assert his or her will or their their will and messes thing things up um so you know the the improvements are made and then there there's that retraction or debasement because some party or group nevertheless emerged due to you know some underlying you know discontent or or problems in, in human nature that don't allow for people to be totally satisfied with the improvements that that have come um so that they they would appreciate the figures in my book the, the more cautious attitude towards progress that that you've given here rather than presenting it as a, as a certainty in the end but i think they would still say rather than focusing on the future rather than focusing on the notion that there will be improvement ahead, fix, fix the problems of the day. Focus on those. Um, focus on making things better for the moment and not pretending that the solution that you've introduced is a permanent one or that you found a permanent solution to problems that are intractable and that are going to arise again. And so they would they would just urge further caution to the enlightenment figures that, that you've mentioned. And Schopenhauer, for instance, had had great respect for, for the Scottish enlightenment figures there. The, those were people he read. But the caution would, would be then, again, to not present problem solving as something that is permanent. You're fixing problems of, of the moment. Good, do that. And maybe you've focused on fixing the challenges of, of your locality, but then don't pretend that what's worked for you now and here will necessarily work when applied elsewhere. And, and don't impose your vision of improvement on other places. So these, these figures would still be worried then that because progress has come about in some places that where it has come about those who believe in in the idea of ever better might feel justified in imposing their view of how to bring mm. about further progress. and and that goes that goes both uh, at a national level in the way that I may force my own views of what is a better life on you. Right. Of course, I would never do it because I'm a libertarian. Uh, and it can work also at a global level where the quote unquote more advanced nations spread across the world, conquering other people and slaughtering them in order to right. force them to adopt 
the, the ways of progress. Right. So there is that danger. Well, I think this is uh, this is this may be a, a good place of agreement that we can end on. And I just want to hold out your book once again, A Road to Nowhere, The Idea of Progress and Its Critics by Matthew Slaboch. Um, I enjoyed reading it very much. And I, uh, I loved your exposition of the, the German authors of the 19th century, the German philosophers. Um, and I think that in spite of uh, what it may seem like, we are actually in agreement on a lot of things, including that there is no directionality to, to history, including there is no guarantee that 10 years from now will be better than, uh, than what it is now, and that it is up to every individual to try to uh, make the best choices possible, fix the problems of today, rather than uh, focusing on building some sort of an ideal future uh, where a lot of people might not be particularly satisfied. Right. All right. I, th I think we've reached common ground in a, in a lot of areas too, and I'm, I'm very glad to, to see that. <laughs>